0: Today, the sermon is on 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And while we're still on this title slide, I'll read the three verses, then we'll get into the expository part of that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual, sexually immoral, Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us both warning and hope. And may we preach the gospel as we go through life and be reminded that you do change us, give us different lives and different destinies. And may we be clear in our thinking, forthright in our witness, by your grace we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first part of verse 9 is another one of these rhetorical questions. Do you not know? It's pretty obvious that there was an issue going on with the church at Corinth because Paul asked this 10 times, and uh, particularly 1 Corinthians 6. Why does he keep asking, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? The reason he continually asked the question of them was they should know. They were taught this. And as Christians, they would know this, but you wouldn't think so by what's going on, how they lived, the different things they were saying and doing. And so this is a corrective. Uh, so do you not know implies you should know because you were taught this. What is it that they should know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this term unrighteous began the section of 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul uh, admonished them about suing each other over what he called trivial things and bringing it before the unrighteous in the world to, to settle Disputes between Christians. So for your reminder, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so clearly, right in the context, the unrighteous are contrasted to the saints. The saints meaning the holy ones, the ones that are sanctified. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't have temptations and problems and things that we need to be freed from. But it does mean that those who are born of God are wanting to be free from what they used to be and to display by his grace what we are in Christ. We just saying part of the family of God. And the point of this section, with the vice list and all, is that God does change lives. He forgives sins. He cleanses. He redeems. And there's real substantial healing even in this life and perfection in the life to come. So we want to take the warning seriously, but not, give up on the promise part of it either. Both are important. The unrighteous are the lost. And there's a bracket again. Paul uses a lot of those. Not inherit the kingdom at the end of this next couple verses, or just within this section, not inherit the kingdom. So the bracket is important. And that's thematic. Not inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom... It's a term that's used a number of times. And the word is a verb that has to do with having a lot or a portion assigned by God, which pertain to his sons and daughters. And it's literally to have a lot, to to, uh, have a section. I can sort of think of farmer terminology. If a farmer, uh, I'm from Iowa, but if a farmer had a bunch of land and left a will that gave part of it to each of the descendants. The lot would be the inheritance assigned to the descendants. Now, in this case, to inherit a kingdom has to do with the eternal promises of God that will be true when the Lord returns. There is a kingdom that will come. It's not in this life, but it's coming. And so those who are sons and daughters of the Lord through faith have a lot, a portion, in the eternal kingdom. And that is an important promise in the Bible. Let me point another spot out here. Is in 1 Corinthians where this to inherit is used again. And it's in 1 Corinthians 15.50. I actually ran a search of this in the New Testament, and the word from the Greek is used 17 times in the New Testament, mostly in the context of inheriting eternal life, the kingdom, salvation, or a blessing. 17 times in the New Testament. Here also in 1 Corinthians, besides the 2 in chapter 6, in 1550 it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There will be a resurrection. There will be perfection. There will be resurrected bodies. and There will be a future eternal kingdom that those who are trusting in Christ will be part of. The last usage. Let me cite to you the last usage of this verb in the New Testament, and that's in Revelation 21:7, Revelation 21:7. He who overcomes, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so that is where it ends in Revelation 21. A relationship, eternal life, new life, a portion assigned to the people who are serving him and believing in him. Why emphasize this? Well, the reason we emphasize it is that it's something that's attacked continually in the world we live in. And the prevailing winds of the culture say, if you don't get to do or be whatever you feel like now, without any kind of restraint, then that's injustice. And don't listen to those Christians with their sweet by and by, whatever, they're just trying to take advantage of you. Nothing can be further from the truth. If you believe the gospel, you know nothing in this world is worth forfeiting our eternal inheritance. And to have a plot have a place, have a lot or a portion of the eternal promises, which are tangible, this isn't just ethereal, this is tangible, when the Lord returns, is worth not getting everything we want now. Because we have enough evidence around us that it doesn't always go well for people who get tons of stuff now Easily and quickly, and at an early age, it often destroys them. The word of God will never harm you. It'll hurt you only if you refuse to believe it. But if you believe it, it'll be to your benefit. Now, here is a warning against deception. 1 Corinthians 6, 9b. Do not be deceived. Again, imperative. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. This is the beginning. We'll continue in the next um, section with this vice list. And th- some of these specific things, common throughout world history, and things that Christians are delivered from. We come from any sort of background. And it's not saying that Christians are perfect, but as I've said many times, God delivers us from our enemies, not our friends. And one of the worst things that can happen is if we just cave into the culture and say, this is the way it has to be, and if I don't get full-blown opportunity to do everything I feel like doing, and say, that's it, that's me, what are we being delivered from? We're being delivered from things that are not God's will and that would destroy us uh, and we need to be free. Now, let me talk about the warning um, and the difference that it, it makes to be in a relationship with God and be a child of the king. I'm glad they sing that. The warning is about doing the same evils as the unbelievers who have no lot or place in God's promises and kingdom. Believers are children of the king who see these things as enemies to our souls and have cried out to God for forgiveness and freedom. God delivers us from our enemies, not our friends. That's just a real easy way to remember it. He delivers us from things that are out there to destroy us and changes us by his grace. Others have asked this question. If these warnings are real, then doesn't that imply that believers are not really secure? They're not, all, they're not really already children of the king? and assured of eternal life. And often there's been debate about the reality of the warning versus the promise of the relationship. And I've said for for a long time, and many others have pointed this out, the warnings are real and do not contradict the assurances. God will use the warning to call us up short. He has in my life. Whoa, this can't be. It has to change. I, I can't live this way. I need God. I need change. I need to live externally and forthrightly as a child of the king. So the assurance given to believers is real. And um, what it says here is God doesn't want us to deceive ourselves. The warnings will motivate change for believers and hopefully convict those who have false assurance or those who are not Christians at all. So we don't want to neglect the warning parts. Let's go to verse 10. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's the back end of the bracket. Well, all of these, as we know, things that are very common that we don't want to be part of. The revilers kind of stands out when you look up the word in the Greek. It really reminds me of the culture we live in now. People are so angry about just about whatever sets off their fuse. They're screaming and painting things and throwing things and breaking things and doing absurd things trying to disrupt ordinary life because of just horrible bitterness and hatred and so forth and revilers then of course the swindlers they're everywhere no matter how skeptical you are somebody can probably talk you out of your money so don't believe a lot of the things that you hear but we want God to change us and the word of God does that and i know some would say teaching the word of god verse by verse like this isn't really going to help what we need is therapy and counseling i disagree with that i believe the word of god does change us and it's perhaps it seems imperceptible but it's real the more the Word of God uh, gets into our hearts and minds, you can't ignore what you just learned. Something that, I don't know how I thought about putting it on a slide title from last week, but at least three or four times in the last week it convicted me. And I think the title was uh, Grace to be Gracious. I... uh, It helped me. It was from Peter's. It was Peter's idea, but I just thought of a title. Several times in this last week, I thought, I'm upset. I've got a grace to be gracious. And I didn't carry through with my intent to be harsh. I'm not saying it won't happen tomorrow. I hope not. But that's right from the Word of God. You can counsel and talk over this problem and that problem and why do I feel this way Why are you that way? And all that. But if you have grace to be gracious, you can get along with a lot of folks. And that helped me. I believe that these scriptures that we are learning together as we search the scripture will change our lives, how we interact with the lost, how we interact within our families, how we interact with one another, because God's word does that. He changes us. So what is the so there's four new vices. There's three vice lists in Corinthians. This list had four new ones. The others were said before. None of these are intended to be comprehensive. In other words, we can't say, well, if it isn't in one of these lists, then it's okay. That, that's another thing. This it's re- revolutionary to think this way rather than looking for what's okay I can get by with, it's really not good anyhow, why not look for the power of God to change our lives? And why would we be looking, let's have a Christianity that says, then we'll hang out a shingle, and whatever it is that's wicked, that's going to be our claim, and we're going to say it's good. That's so much postmodern or whatever. What do they call it now? When I wrote a book about it, it was called postmodern. We want to be free and we want to be different. We don't want to get to do whatever we want and harm ourselves and our families. We want God to change us. And it's not never abusive for the word of God to give us the promise that God forgives sins, God changes lives, God redeems, and we are new creatures in Christ if we turn to him. And that's the point, and those who rail against that don't even understand the gospel at all. Let me show you something that indicates this is not a comprehensive list. In a similar list, in Galatians 5.21, let me read that. Envying, drunkenness, drowsing, and then it says, And things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do we want kingdom now? My own little kingdom where everything goes the way I want? Or do we believe that inheriting the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, that these eternal promises are real? And that a time will come when we'll be so joyful with the Lord, redeemed and perfected in our glorified bodies, however that works out for all eternity, including the millennial kingdom and so on, that we will be so thankful we didn't listen to the world. So thankful we didn't think, man, if I could have just... uh, Whatever it is, we think woulda, coulda, shoulda. Shoulda got that lottery ticket and won it, and they have a billion dollars. Honestly, whatever it is. By the way, you're just paying taxes. Did you know that? When you buy lottery tickets, you're paying taxes. Well, whatever the case, it's not... The, the hope is to be conformed to the image of Christ and have eternal inheritance. So that is the Christian hope. Let's go to verse 11. Here we have it laid right out for us. Changed lives. And this is what the Lord says about the flock there in Corinth, despite all the problems. And such were some of you, 611, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. But, very powerful statement, strong adversative in the Greek, changed, really, not just bushel thinking, not just some idea, well, I'm better than you because I'm religious, no, really changed. Washed, some would say, is baptized, but that's a, maybe an illusion to baptism, but that would be a different word that he would use. It means to be washed from your sins. I'll talk about that when we have an application from John. So, washed, depending on your denomination, some people find baptism everywhere. And, uh, because they believe in baptismal regeneration. I don't believe in that. I believe that when we're baptized, we're burying the old man, reminding ourselves what God did and why we're not in Egypt, figuratively, and how we came out and how we're a new people. But here it means cleansing or washing. that takes away the filth. Sanctified means made holy. The, by the way, the three Greek words, apol. Lu-o, sanctified hagiadzo, justified diakayao. So one has to do with what? the other with made holy, the other is made right before the holy judge of the whole universe. What an amazing statement about how God takes us, having nothing going for us, and changing us, and making us children of the king with an eternal inheritance. One of the things that I saw happen in, uh, since I became a Christian over 50 years ago, the little churches where we went, where we were married and so on, sang very simple songs like the last one we sang. A lot of them. And a lot of them had to do with hope in heaven. And then the critics came along and said, well, you, you know what? You're just a little dumpy church on the wrong side of the tracks if you're old enough and rural enough. You remember that statement. And then uh, now we're sophisticated. We've got mega churches. We've got massive institutions. We have counselors. We have everything you could ever want and we're successful as anybody else, and we're powerful, we've got all this, no more of this sweet by-and-by nonsense. We want kingdom now. We (laughs) We want everybody to look at us and be envious about what we have. And that, I think, is very tragic. Because Christ and his apostles were the ones who talk about about inheriting eternal life. It's not ever unworthy to hope for eternal life. To know that whatever we do have or don't have now is nothing compared to the promises that God's made for us. And I don't apologize for singing about, although I can't sing and then preach too, so that in general we sing about child of the king, hope in heaven, because that's exactly what God promises. And this change is real. People that never could have been different, never could have got gotten off of what they were on and away from what they were doing, have been changed. God the Father, this is a Trinitarian redemption here. Uh, I was tempted to make the slide... Trinitarian change lies. God the Father meets sinners, heirs of the kingdom through Christ and the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a very uh, striking, how would you say it, uh, structure to this in the Greek. There's three strong adversities. Uh, but is actually there each time. The strong adversity of Allah, but You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. These heirs verbs are in the passive, and it means God did it, and He did it at a point of time. When you're converted, you are changed. Washed, sanctified, justified. Washed, sanctified, justified. I have it here in my notes. this is a tr- fully Trinitarian work of salvation in its fullest meaning. Praise God for that. Uh, we're going to in the applications which we'll go to here, I have an extended section from John 3 because I, I missed teaching on John. I preached through it in the 80s and referred to it many other times. but I want to go back to John as part of our applications and talk about being born again and what that implies. But here are the three points of implication and application. Those who are to inherit the kingdom of God cannot and do not live like the world. Number two, since the kingdom is now unseen, we must believe God's eternal promises. Frankly, if we preach forthrightly the truth people aren't going to believe us unless god does something because people aren't willing to think it's worth giving up the pleasures of this life for eternal hope just because we say that's what they ought to do it's god that convicts us verse number three but do not do not believe deterministic lies because god does change lives through christ and by his spirit I won't use that again as we go on, but I want to mention deterministic. What what does that imply, deterministic? The world wants to say, this is the way you are, so let's just enhance that and make that everything. And we've got to have a church version of everything the world has and call it good. That is determinism. What's determined is that every person born in this world is born of Adam, fallen. The doctrine of the fall, neglected nowadays, not even believed by most, is the key thing we need to realize. Every human being, no matter where they're from, no matter the status of their earthly family, no matter whatever you can think of, is born of Adam, fallen, and needing a Savior. But it's not determined that we have to be certain ways because that's the way we prefer. What we need is for God to change us. He does do so. Now let's look at a couple of passages, and I want to focus on John 3. Here's another mention of the inheritance of the kingdom it's in Ephesians 5 5 through 6 an inheritance of the kingdom is given as an alternative to the wrath of God here's what Paul wrote for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance In the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. With empty words. For because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon. The sons of disobedience. The phrase the sons of disobedience. Is a Hebraic expression. Sons of. In this type of context means. Characterized by. Characterized by. So those who do not obey the gospel are characterized by disobedience to God. And so this is another warning that, and another warning about deception, another call for change, and and a warning not to listen to empty words. It's so sad. A couple of us are having a conversation before Sunday school started that the educational, Christian educational institutions in our country, and I'm not familiar with everything around the world, but I certainly know what's going on here, and even where I've been educated, have jettisoned clear, expository teaching, the the basics, the sound doctrine, the truths of the Scripture, in order to embrace the larger culture so that it can be a Christianized version of everything the world believes. Eric and I met under at a time when he was asked me to meet him at the seminary where this was coming in. And the guy that we were concerned about is now an atheist who had been teaching theology at a Baptist seminary. So the fact is that it's hard to know where to send somebody if they wanted to be trained for the ministry. Because what are you going to be taught? Everybody has a right to be whatever they are, even if what they are is in these lists of vices. And so there's nothing left to be delivered from. There's only what to say, yay. But I thank God that God delivered me from bondage, and he delivers others. And we cannot promote what God promises to set us free from if we turn to him. That's deception. Let me also cite verses 7 and 8. You don't have to turn there. I want to get us to John here quickly, but Ephesians 5, 7, and 8, you can jot that down. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, warning, promise. You won't inherit or you will inherit. Both are true. And change. Warning, promise, and change. You are light in the Lord. Remember, we saw earlier in um, 1 Corinthians, the imperative is grounded in the indicative. Become what you are. So if we are light in the Lord, because we've been transferred from darkness to light, then there should be light that's apparent, that we're not in the darkness of the world around us. Uh, and praise God that he does that. And I'll, I'll point this out in John. It's an indication of the work of the spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit. But he works changing lives. So let's look at Colossians. And then we'll get, as I promised, into John. Colossians one twelve to 12-14. Again, we're looking at the future inheritance of the sons and daughters of God. By the way, when it says sons, it includes human beings. It's the way the Bible is talking. We're not excluded based on gender, but based on whether or not we have a relationship with God. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins the forgiveness of sins giving thanks primarily in the bible is about Blessing God and thanking him for his mighty deeds. You can read so many psalms where it's stated that way. Blessed be God and what he did. He delivered us. He set us free. So the feasts are reminders of what God did to make a people, a people that were slaves, and to bring them out, bring them to himself, through many mighty deeds to reveal himself. The mighty deed that God did, that we proclaim, is he sent Jesus Christ, eternal God, second person of the Trinity, who created all things out of nothing. And this mighty deed in Christ is that he came into our world the very creator came into the created world born of a virgin miraculously as promised in scripture and fulfilled in real history and he lived a sinless life his mighty deeds demonstrate his deity Jesus did things no one else has done Or will do. Don't get that wrong. We talked about that last week. Sunday school we saw video. There are a lot of people saying he came to show us what we can do. No, the Bible claims he did what we couldn't do. And that he's unique and all powerful. And frankly, the mighty deeds of God the Son convince us to believe in God the Son. Not believe in human potential. and so this one the sinless one is the only one ever in all of history to predict his own death burial resurrection and accomplish it before witnesses and the resurrected Christ who died for sins once for all appeared to many witnesses and he bodily ascended to heaven in fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1 he reigns at the right hand of God, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. We pray to Him, and He hears us, and He answers us. And the gospel is about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning to Him. I'm not saying by these passages and preaching them that this means if we have religion then you can probably be a better person, whether true or not. I'm saying that what we need is redemption. We need to be rescued. We need to be transferred from darkness to light. And this is what it's about. And he calls us to repent, turn from serving self and the world and sin, and turn to him and live with him by his grace and for him and have the promise of, of a share, meris, I think is the Greek there, a share in the inheritance, which has this word, kleros, which is a lot, a lot. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And qualified there, by the way, is a word that means to render sufficient. How could you be qualified to have an inheritance from the king of the universe? Only if he did it. None of us can say, hey, I got it coming. Where's my inheritance? Now, let's go to John. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to open mine. I was thinking this morning, uh, really, this needs to be introduced. I have left some time here to work through these passages about born again and seeing the kingdom. Now, if you turn to John three one, if you... Uh, look a few verses before that in the end of chapter 2 I think you sort of get the idea of what's going on I'll read 23 through 25 and then we'll get to this passage while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. Because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Why did Jesus not entrust himself to man? Because man is sinner alienated from God. So it's not without purpose that verse 1 starts the way it does. So he didn't entrust himself to man. He didn't believe in man because he knew what was in man. Now let's go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man. You look at it in the Greek, it really catches you, anthropos. I don't trust man, there's a man. And this one was a religious man, a trained man, a prominent man. Let's read on. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, notice the plural, we, know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do, Unless God is with you. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as you read this, if you just think about this, we're familiar with all these passages. If we've been reading the Bible, Well, wouldn't that be startling? He comes sort of trying to flatter Jesus. You must be a teacher from God. Why did he come by night? Some think in in the cloak of darkness. But in John, night is generally kind of an ominous thing. It makes us think, I don't know what's going on with this Nicodemus. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's our topic. How do you have an inheritance in the kingdom? Cannot. Literally, the Greek, dunami, means without power. You don't have the power to see it. You're powerless. You won't see the kingdom of God. One scholar says uh, about this born again, he's, uh, Dr. Klink says this, the adverb means both again and from above, so he translates it born anew. Some of your translations have born again, others have born from above, Both would be correct, but it'd be born anew. Something has to radically change. The true need, this is my statement, is for the transformation, for transformation by a work of God that is truly supernatural. This is not the need for a self-improvement program. Even Nicodemus, with his pedigree, And training could not make himself qualified for the kingdom. Now the reader of John would already think there's something wrong. Because he wasn't entrusting himself to man. There came a man. This was a religious man, a trained man, distinguished man, and a lost man. And he needed Something And so Jesus said, unless one is born new, cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 4 through 5. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born? Let me stop right there. Obviously, he is throwing this out, probably in a mocking way. It's not that either Jesus or Nicodemus doesn't know about human birth. So he throws that out. What kind of a thing are you saying? You're going to go back and be born? It's absurd. So it's probably mockery or rebuke to Jesus. Jesus answered, truly, truly, the Greek is amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Last time, cannot see the kingdom, cannot enter the kingdom. Now, I'm going to share with you, Eric called me this week, and I I had this in mind, and I remember him talking about this. I think there's a better reading, and I'll share it with you, that has... has a number of scholars have pointed this out, and Eric and I uh, are excited to see this because I think it explains it the best. Many people think born of water is either like a normal natural birth, but Nicodemus knew how people are born. And everybody that would hear this has been born the way people are born. So this is something more than that. Others say water must be baptism. But again, a lot of this is anachronistic. The idea of baptismal regeneration and church sacraments and stuff post-dates this discussion. Okay? So I don't think that's a good answer, although it might be alluded to. The water is probably something different. Water and the Spirit, the the, the thing that really, I think, brings us out is this app, or apositional, which means saying it, Two ways, water, the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom. Now, you can be turning here to Ezekiel thirty six twenty five to twenty seven, and I w- hope to make a case that because. Go ahead and turn to, if you have if you want to do that Ezekiel thirty six twenty five to twenty seven, and I'll read from there. Nicodemus was a ruler. He was educated. He was a religious leader. He knew Tanakh. He knew the prophets. He knew the Bible, and so Jesus is pointing to him to something that would make sense from the Old Testament point of view. I believe he's speaking of spiritual cleansing. So Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five through twenty-seven. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you, And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There's a prophecy from Ezekiel that prophesies, I believe, of what exactly Jesus is speaking of here. Newness. Born new. Born from above. Born of God. And so, Nicodemus, the man that Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to, men who were all sinners, all of us, knew the Bible. He knew the promises of the Old Testament. And born of water and spirit, I believe the best reading is just an allusion to Ezekiel and other passages. If you think about it, there's even more that comes. If you go to the next chapter of Ezekiel, it's about the dry bones that live. Isn't every redeemed sinner somebody dead who was made alive? Isn't every redeemed sinner somebody who was alienated from God and walking in darkness and light, life, uh, hope, promises of God, water that cleanses away the filth of our old horrible lives and brings us newness through messianic salvation Uh, a couple scholars if you're interested da carson has a good commentary that contains the same uh, reading of the text here and i think it's uh, the right one and another man by the name of edward clink and uh they have some statements that i think are accurate Let me just cite Carson here. If water equal baptism is so important for entering the kingdom, says Carson, it's surprising that the rest of the discussion never mentions it again. The entire focus is on the work of the Spirit, verse 8. The work of the Son, verses 14 through 15. The work of God, verses 16 through 17, in the place of faith. 15 through 16. So if you read on John 3, you don't have baptism. You have the work of God, the Trinity changing people through faith by his mighty work. And there, again, I won't cite Clink directly, but he says similar things that he points out the rest of Ezekiel, including the dry bones. The dry bones, dead dry bones Most people have probably heard this. I think there's old songs about that somewhere. The dead dry bones live. And uh, there's a preview of this earlier in John. And that's in John 1, 12 and 13. I'll read that to you. John 1, 12 and 13, if you want to write that down. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Verse 13, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you take the preview from earlier in John, the prophetic passage in Ezekiel, and the statements here, I believe that's the best reading born new by a work of God. And uh, I praise God for that. Let's go to our last slide, which is John 3, 6 through 8. He continues, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What does he mean by that? We can't literally see the Holy Spirit. But what is it that is seen? What is seen is the Holy Spirit delivering dead, dry bones, lost sinners, rebels, fallen man, anthropos, and forgiving sins and changing lives so that the lost are found, the hopeless have eternal hope, the condemned are forgiven and liberated, and lives are different. That's the essence of what this is about. It's not about saying a little prayer and being uh, on a church roll somewhere. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying a prayer. There's nothing wrong with being enrolled in church, but that's not sufficient. We want to be enrolled in heaven, and that is independent on human religion. Uh, this, uh, one of my, the scholars here, Dr. Klink, says, Now Nicodemus is forced to face his true challenger, God himself. He's face-to-face with the challenge of God the Son. Remember, he was trying to be nice. Oh, we know you're from God. But now Nicodemus is called up short. He needs the gospel Today I shared the gospel with you and uh, I believe that these words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit the scriptures the better we understand them the more powerful impact they will have on our lives. You can't enhance the word of God with human wisdom and expect a better outcome. Human wisdom doesn't change anyone's destiny. You can decide certain things like, okay, it's February time to lose weight or whatever we tend to do in America. And that would have happened, but then the Super Bowl came along and it's not enough for what size we are. We need a new destiny which is an inheritance in the kingdom. And that's what it's about. We don't need human wisdom. And I do pray for myself, for all of us, that the word of God would have such an impact on us that we start just realizing there's hope. It it doesn't, my life doesn't have to be characterized by whatever it has been. God does really change lives and he uses his word to do so. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look into these glorious things which you've revealed to us and for us. And may we not be cynical like Nicodemus that we read about. May we not be boastful or anything else. May we be humbled by what you've told us and believe it. And we do pray that you continue to change us And I do pray, Lord, that some will hear this and come to faith and be born new even today. Thank you for what you've done, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.